This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Kathy Littles, the Dean of the School of Consciousness and Transformation at CIIS, explores how Western museums have historically held power and authority in matters of race. This event was recorded on June 21st, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you, everyone. I start with a prayer to our ancestors. Through the shadows of limiting memory, out across the gulf of years, I call now to my ancestors. Grandmothers, grandfathers, all honorable ancestors across the ages, I call to you. Old ones of my life, rest you well. Hear my prayer and accept my tribute. For again, I recall that it was only through your ancient struggle, through your ancient endurance, through your ancient love, that I now take the blessings of life, that I may walk this day informed by your vision. Old ones, hear my prayer. That I may walk this day guided by your wisdom. Old ones, hear my prayer. That I might walk this way empowered by your love. Old ones, hear my prayer. Old ones of my line, you are not forgotten. Rest you well. That's by Iraq from 2004. And I start this evening with a prayer to our ancestors because so much of African art has been misunderstood and taken out of context. And I feel that we have a responsibility to not only honor the art, but honor the makers as well and to bring them into the room. As some of you know, most of African art was not made to be shown in museums. They were made to be danced in ceremonies um, for men, women, boys, and girls. I'm sure that the makers of these beautiful artworks did not think that it was going to be behind plexiglass. It was simply not the intent. However, if you know better, you should do better, right? And so I think I'm part of a long legacy of human beings, whether they're scholars, lovers of art, just people, lovers of people and wanting to do the right thing, that we begin to contextualize and dissect what we are seeing. Um, and that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, I want to begin with this notion that I'm just fascinated and excited that there are actually people interested in thinking about the museum in a different way. The politics of the museum. And I would like to offer that the museum as we know it, or as we think of it, are orderly places, right? There's a code of conduct. When I was growing up, you dressed up to go to the museum. It was an event. 
Um, and so we're going to this evening look at the museum as a sign and symbol. The audience is expanding in the museum. When I was at the De Young Museum many, many years ago in the ambassador program, it was a program where we taught young high school students to give tours in the museum. It was fabulous, it was a wonderful, wonderful program. Most of the students came from public schools in San Francisco. It's a great way to bring them in the door. That was my perspective. The perspective of the director was we were building future museum audiences. So always there was an eye towards building the audience and the dollar, right? We never wanna lose sight of the money train, especially in our cultural institutions because that drives quite a bit of content as I will show later on this evening. And so if we are to think about building future audiences in museums, and let me be specific, it's audiences as it pertains of expanding uh, class dynamics, racial giant dynamics, and geographical dynamics. So if we are going to swing open the door to this larger audience, we ought to be ready for what they're going to bring and what kind of questions they're going to ask because it's going to be different than what we have seen and heard before. And sometimes the museum is ready, and a lot of times they're not. And I think what we will see in my exhibit, excuse me, in my example of the African Voices exhibit was that the Smithsonian wasn't ready. That when the audience expanded, that they were not ready to hear and respond to a lot of the political, cultural criticism that happened. And they caught, they found themselves caught in a very complicated dynamic, which frankly, I believe still occurs today. So we will see that. I'd like to think of the museum as a communicator and a performer, that it actually performs culture. It communicates something to us as soon as we walk in the door. Its actual location communicates something to us. Do we have access to it? Is it on a bus line? Is it in a suburb? Is it in a city? These are the ways in which a museum communicates its importance to us even before we walk in the door. So I'm asking us to kind of stand back and contextualize the museum on that level as well. And so if we were to think about together, every major museum, excuse me, every major city has some type of museum. And what does that say about the cultural importance of these kinds of institutions as we pull back and look at the importance of the museum itself? And so I want to start with this black and white slide. It is a black and white slide of four African women washing clothes on the ground. And there is a white woman, Mrs. Thomas, watching over them. This slide was shown at the Royal Ontario Museum exhibit, Into the Heart of Africa. The title itself is problematic. Um, this uh, exhibit happened in 1989. So this was shown at an exhibit in 1989. And the caption reads, Mrs. Thomas offering a, quote, lesson in how to wash clothes to Yagba women in northern Nigeria in 1915. And so if we were to look at that, the first thing I think is 
The women didn't know how to wash clothes before Mrs. Thomas. They don't need Mrs. Thomas to show them how to wash clothes. And so I want us to think about how these labels situate us. Um, in the realm of infantilizing these women, um, minimizing these women, um, to the effect that they needed Mrs. Thomas to teach them a very simple task. And so how does that land with us as audience members as we are roaming through an exhibit, um, taking in the messages that are being shared with us? And so this is part of the conundrum, right? That um, much of these exhibits in, ter in terms of African art, Africanness, blackness, especially the exhibits that are permanent in our museums are highly problematic in terms of issues of race and class. And so I ask you this evening to listen to what I'm saying with the spirit of openness. I'm not trying to convince you of anything, but I think what, we, what I would like to have happen is that you consider these larger, very um, complex issues of race and class that play themselves out in our museums. I look at museums as in two ways. Um, there are the museums that I like to say they have pretty pictures, right? The Monets, they are your beautiful art museums in a traditional sense. And then there are cultural museums that are grounded in exhibiting culture. We've all seen them. Um, they are very popular. Um, oftentimes they put on exhibits that are highly successful because people are curious. Um, but museums are political spaces that are involved in identity politics. They are about power, authority, class, access, representation. And so when we look at these cultural museums and they bring up problematic images for us, I'm reminded what Adam Hothchild told me years ago. He wrote the book, King Leopold's Ghost. Unfortunately, we'll have to talk about King Leopold in this presentation. But what he said to me was, and it makes sense, people go to museums to feel good. They don't necessarily go to museums to feel bad about humanity. But oftentimes, the story isn't a nice one, right? And I think the museum is a container that can and should hold that space as well. But when we are telling the story that isn't exactly a feel-good story, um, we ought to do it right. And we ought to have an open space for dialogue. Okay. So I want to move on to our next slide. That little person should look familiar to you. I want to situate myself in this work. This is a color photograph of my mom and I. Um, I think it's important that I acknowledge and, and really be clear about my own personal story and my own class privilege that allows me to say the things that you're going to hear. Um, museums are deeply personal to me. 
They were places that my mother and I would go for a mother-daughter afternoon. Um, my parents were traditional Southern parents from Arkansas and Louisiana, country Southern parents who believed in education, believed in the arts. And so my brother and I were brought up with that in our home. Um, and so visiting museums, galleries, taking art classes was part of my upbringing. And so because I had access and because I had a, a comfortable feeling in the museum space, I think it also opened up the space for me to be critical of them as well um, in a different way. So I would like to share with you um, a personal passage that I wrote regarding a time when I went to the King Tut exhibit in 1979 at the De Young Museum. I fondly recall visiting the King Tut Museum in 1979 at the De Young Museum in San Francisco. Large crowds that literally hummed with excitement overwhelmed me. I knew that I was in some place special. Inside the museum was like stepping into another world, another time and place. My mother recalls how I looked up her at the King, looked up at her at the King Tup exhibit and innocently stated that I wanted to someday work in a museum. Conversely, however, my memories of the California Academy of Sciences invoked a different visual and emotional experience. I was still quite young when our class ventured over to the Academy of Sciences in the 1980s. The particulars of the day have long since regressed into a different distant memory. But I specifically remember an instance in the Africa Hall gallery. Displayed were numerous dioramas of stuffed animals native to the African continent. Dispersed throughout some of the reproduced nature scenes, tucked behind plexiglass, and alongside the animals were an African mom and several women and men in various states of dress. In some of the reenactments, African men were depicted, depicted holding spears and dressed in animal skin. The image is a familiar one, loaded with cultural and racial innu innuendos. For us kids, most of whom were of African descent, the, the display provided fertile ground for making fun of our African customs. This was, in hindsight, a clear effort to disassociate ourselves from African culture. Although we shared a similar phenotype, and I speak for myself here, I did not see nor have the desire to be connected in any way to the type of Africanness that was displayed in the Africa Hall. And I think that's a problem. And I think that um, I knew very little about the African continent. Um, but there was a connection that I longed for even at that young age. Um, and I think for many, that longing for the gap in history, especially those of us who are from African descent and cannot pinpoint our ancestors the way that other cultures can. This is very traumatic. It still is. I've gotten over it. I'm a little older now. But there is something about the disconnect 
to ancestors and having to quote unquote fill in the gap that is hard even now. Um, I think that we need no greater example of how many African Americans desire for an African home, an African ancestry, than Black Panther, than the success of this movie. This movie was an event for African Americans. People dressed up, they went in groups, they went multiple times. Um, we had dinners and ceremonies around this movie. There's something to that, right? This was, in my estimation, our need to feel home, our need to feel like we had a home and have a home. This is about black identity. This is about connection. And I think Black Panther, which broke all the records, exemplifies that. And I'm often <laughs> trying to make connections between Africanness and my African-American um, state. And I'm often um, on Saturdays watching Sanford and Son. <laughs> and I, I was, as I was thinking about this, I, I'm breaking back to an episode where the son Lamont Sanford wanted to change his name to Kalunga. And I remember the father, Fred Sanford, saying, I'm not going to change the business to Fred Sanford and Kalunga. I'm not going to do that. But the son who wore a daishiki had this amazing conversation with his father, Fred Sanford, about his, his desire to reconnect to his roots. His father was having none of it at all. Um, but I think there is, and I, I remember a, a conversation that the son was having with the father, and, and the father said, my ancestors in my home is in St. Louis. And I thought that's a, that's a divide there that is very real and very present, even today. That there are some that will say that our home as African-Americans, black people, is here in the United States. We can trace that. And then there are others who feel a very deep connection to the African continent. Um, and I probably fall in the latter. But my life is in flux as well. So I'm often reminded of the beautiful poetry of the Harlem Renaissance, often which talked about the longing for black identity or the complexity of black identity. And one of the poems that have, have always stuck with me is County Cullen's poem called Heritage. And I'm not going to read all of it to you. I'm just going to read some. Um, but I would like for you to contemplate what County Cullen was going through in 1925 when he wrote this poem as a black man, an artist in Harlem. What is Africa to me? Copper sun or scarlet sea? Jungle star or jungle track? Strong brazen man or regal black? Women from whose loins I sprang when the birds of Eden sang. One three centuries removed 
from the scenes of his father's love. Spicy grove, cinnamon tree, what is Africa to me? One three centuries removed from the scenes his father loved. Spicy grove, cinnamon tree, what is Africa to me? So I lie who find no peace, night or day, no slight release, from the unremittent beat made by cruel padded feet, walking through my body street, up and down they go and back, treading out a jungle track. So I lie, who never quite safely sleep from train at night. I can never rest at all. When the ruin begins to fall, like a soul gone mad with pain, I must match its weird refrain. Even must I twist and squirm, writhing like a baited worm, while its primal measures strip through my body crying strip. Doth this new exuberance come and dance the lover's dance in an old remembered way. Rain works on me night and day, all day long and all night through. One thing only must I do, quench my pride and cool my blood, lest I perch in the flood, lest a hidden ember set, timber that I thought was set, burning like the driest flax, melting like the merest wax, lest the grave restored the dead, not yet has my heart or head. In the least way realize they and I are civilized. County Cullen, like me, knew little about the African continent, never gone there. But he felt a spiritual connection, which I think so many people do. In order for this talk to resonate on a deeper level, I want to offer that we must embrace the concept that blackness is marked in a very different way in the United States. And I say that because as we actually get into the exhibit itself, people will say, well, you can say that about any culture that's exhibited in the museum. And some of that is true, but there is something about blackness that sets it apart. And I think Dubois illustrates that absolutely beautifully um, in an excerpt from Souls of Blackness. It's a classic. Between me and the other world, there has never been an unmasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, but others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All nevertheless flutter around it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way. I, me, curiously or compassionately. And then instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town. Or I fought at Mechanicsville. Or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these, I smile, or am uninterested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer. 
as the occasion may require. To the question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word. It is a powerful piece. And the question of how does it feel to be a problem is still relevant today. Blackness mediates how we look at our current state of affairs. Do we need any more example than what happened at the Starbucks earlier this year, where you have two young black men wanting to use the restroom in a Philadelphia Starbucks, we're told no until you buy something. They go and sit down, wait for their business meeting to start, and someone calls the police. You're not gonna tell me that isn't about blackness and maleness in the United States. And we have lots of examples, but I thought that one is so crystal clear um, and really rocked a lot of people. Um, some of us weren't surprised. Nevertheless, I think it's just such a stunning state in 2000, 2018 that something so blatant is happening on an, on an everyday basis. Um, and aren't we thankful for the internet and for iPhones and for photographs and for videos? Um, because now no one can say you're exaggerating or that didn't happen. Um, so how does it feel to be a problem? These young black men were problems without saying anything. It was their mere presence. And so I think that translates into our cultural institutions. How do we make meaning of our museums? How does the museum show us what is valued? And most importantly, who is valued? How do we decolonize the museum? I love this question, who owns culture? Who makes the decisions of what we see when we go into the museum? And I would add that simply inviting community members and different voices may not be the solution. It's more about a change in philosophy, our practices, our methods of how to build a community how do we build coalitions? How do we communicate with one another? How do we communicate with activists, elders, community members? And so I asked my, this question a lot. Why are museums important? And if we really think about it, short of travel, and I'm talking mostly museums that are have a um, bend around culture, right? Um, that museums are instrumental, instrumental in how the African image has been constructed. Um, short of traveling to the African continent, um, watching television, having friends, community, where do we really get this image of Africa and Africanness? And that's a question for all of us. I ask it myself. Museums play a part of that. They have historically been a place that we go to learn and reassure ourselves about culture, history, environment, technology. We look at museums as, as truth tellers. If it's in a museum, it must be the truth. 
And I know this for a fact, because in my years in the museum, I would hear audience members say, and, and not have the, the language to deconstruct, you know, it's in the museum, scholar researched it, the label is telling me it is so-and-so, it must be true. And so how do we start to disrupt that? Because I think it's sorely needed. I'm going to transition to um, a really, I've had a lot of defining moments, but <laughs> this was one that really I look back on, it was one of the defining moments in my career in museums and certainly in my scholarship as I went to UC Davis. In 1998, I was working at the De Young Museum and got a great internship as um, a curatorial fellow for the Masterpieces from Central Africa exhibit. It was called Treasures of African Art from the Treviran Museum. Had a great internship. My responsibility was, it was a traveling exhibit that was consisted of 125 African objects from the Tervira Museum in Belgium. This museum was created by King Leopold. Huge museum, huge collection of Central African art. Well, they were celebrating their anniversary, and so lots of museums around the world accepted this exhibit as it traveled. And so we didn't really need to come up with any labels because it was a, um, a packaged exhibit, if you will. And so we received it in San Francisco. My job was to go through the labels. Um, I had a little bit to say in terms of how the layout would go in the space. The space was actually held at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. As I look back, um, it was an amazing experience. At the same time, the museum was also hosting the Rhapsodies in Black Art of the Harlem Renaissance exhibit. They opened at the, literally the same night. Um, and I didn't have anything to do with that exhibit, but what an opportunity to have an African art show and a Rhapsodies in Black Harlem Renaissance show open at the same time in the same museum. Okay, so we have an opening night at the Legion of Honor. Lots of people show up. And at the end of the evening, people are dispersed to go and enjoy the exhibit. As I wait for the throngs of people to come and visit the Masterpieces from Central Africa exhibit, maybe five people came. I was so hurt. I think that's a good word. I was hurt. And I went upstairs and the place was packed for Harlem Renaissance. It was a great exhibit. The place was packed. And I'm just going to say this, that I'm going out of order a little bit, but I feel the need to say this. I called my parents that night, just horrified and really, like I said, hurt, took it very personally. Um, and I will never forget what they said. So, well, you know, your audience was, was older. They were a more mature group. They probably were, they had more resonance with the Harlem Renaissance exhibit. 
That doesn't mean that the African art exhibit wasn't important, but there is a more of a connection to the Harlem Renaissance exhibit. And I said, but you have all these people talking about going back to Africa and wearing daishikis and, you know, power to the people and let's go and do our Ghana trip. And you don't come to the African art exhibit? What's the problem here? I was so confused. I was confused. I was confused. I was confused. Um, but I appreciated my parents' perspective. I really, really did. And it made sense. So let me continue. We're going to talk about this exhibit for a minute. One of the challenges that I had with this exhibit was two instances happened. Um, so like I said, it was mostly an, an aesthetic art exhibit, sculptures, masks, really, really beautiful art that was stolen from Central Africa by King Leopold and its people. Um, but the quandary became, how do we address this notion of King Leopold? He, the objects came from his museum. We can't just ignore it, you know? But how do you address that at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco? Um, and so what we did was we created an education room. So as you end the exhibit, and you come towards the end, we had a tables full of books, um, really good. We had a, um, a comic book there. And then what we decided was to include a, I believe it was a PBS video that was an interview with Adam Hofschild, a couple of other African scholars that talked about King Leopold's ghost. And so we actually showed the video on a continuous loop. Um, you had to go, it was behind a huge wall. So you had to go behind the wall, you know, kind of in a figure eight and then watch the video over across, over to the side. Um, but we included the video. Um, we also, so two things. This picture was a major point of controversy. Many people did not want to include this photograph. It's a photograph, black and white, of a Yambe woman with elaborate scarification from the early 1900s. This was um, around the same time of the discussion around female genital mutilation. And so there is this discussion around, you know, our, well, visitors look at this as a form of mutilation, as a form of brutality. And we ended up thinking that this is actually an opportunity for us to talk about women's agency and social status. This is actually a form of beauty to the Yambe women. And what a great opportunity for us to share with the audience, not to project our own stuff, if you will, onto other cultures, and to dig deep into the social and cultural context and practices of these women. And so we included this black and white photograph. And I'm glad that we did. Um, and I think it was the right decision in the long run. The other piece that I wanted, and I just wanted to show you, this is a color photograph of a Yambe maternity statue. And you can actually see 
the importance of scarification. I don't know if you can see it on her chest here. Um, it is, and we, you see lots of photographs of them and lots of scarification um, imagery on the art itself. And so we had an opportunity to, to share the story, and we did. I think we did a good job with that. The next more problematic um, narrative was exactly the King Leopold narrative. So what you're looking at here is a black and white photograph. One person is sitting in a chair, one person is standing. The person standing looks like a very young child of enslaved Congolese um, with their hands severed off. And so what I think was absolutely paramount, and I'm actually playing the conversation in my mind that I observed with cur curators discussing this photograph. And I remember one curator saying, I don't want severed hands in my exhibit. And I'll never forget that, because it really wasn't about her. It was more about the story that needed to be told about the collection practices of the art that we were viewing at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco in 1998. And so what we're looking at here um, is a black and white photograph, like I said, um, with um, people who had their hands severed off. Because if you didn't make your rubber quota, you got your hand cut off. And many of the accounts of King Leopold that I researched talked about baskets full of hands. And so the brutality and evilness of this regime was remarkable, really. And yet, the collection of art that was stolen and looted is so beautiful. Um, and so that's the bind that you're in, right? Um, and it puts us, us, as audience members, as curators, as appreciators of culture, in a bind, really. Um, because as I started out the talk, the art that we are seeing, especially in the Treveran exhibit, wasn't meant to be in museums, and yet here we are. Um, I think museums shape historical memory, and we ought to be cognizant of that. I think that um, as I look back and remember the media coverage of this exhibit in particular, the Oakland Tribune did a review, made no mention of King Leopold. It was strictly an aesthetic review. The San Francisco Chronicle had one sentence that the art was from the Trevere Museum um, that was started by King Leopold, who was a colonizer in Central Africa. And so they had one sentence. That was the only mention. Um, and so that's the, that's the debate for some. It's not a debate for me. Because I think divorcing this from this, meaning the black and white photograph, from the actual art itself does a disservice to all of us. And we ought to tell the story in context, um, no matter how painful and hurtful it is.
So I want to transition to the Smithsonian Institution, America's Attic. We are now looking at a black and white, excuse me, a color photograph of the Smithsonian. I just want to acclimate you here. It's an old photograph. Right over here is where the new museum, African American History, is. This is the uh, offices. This is the Natural History Museum. It is huge, for those of you who haven't been there. If you haven't been to the Smithsonian, the next time you go to DC, you got to make a trip to the Smithsonian Museums. They're free. You can stay all day. Um, I worked at this museum right there. Um, that's the uh, African Art Museum. A wonderful experience. It was really something working at the Smithsonian. By the way, what I really like to tell people is that there's a whole city underground in the Smithsonian. Like everything is connected by tunnels and everything. It's really a fabulous, fabulous place. I was treated well. They were generous with their time. Um, no complaints there. But America's Attic was also called the Plantation by some staff members. You let that sit for a minute. Um, some scholars of color also call the Smithsonian Institution the Plantation. I was there, I'm trying to think from memory, I believe I was there in 2001. So America's Attic uh, was started by James Smithson. I'm not gonna give you a whole history, I'm just gonna give you a little bit of context so we can move on to the African Voices exhibit. But for those of you who don't know the history of just museums in general, the early museum was constructed for elite white males to engage in identity politics. They would go out, collect their art, steal their art, loot their art, however way they collected it. Massive, massive amount of art and needed a place to display it so they can show everybody um, how important they were, how rich they were, how they could travel to these places and bring back quote unquote wares. White male identity politics, that was the foundation of the museum. Make no mistake about it. It was for the economic and educationally elite it was about exclusion and privilege, period. You see that today still. Look at who's on the board of some of these museums. It's about power, money, class, and status. The museum occupied a different space than expositions and world fairs, which are actually, were actually quite um, popular. I think that um, I want to show this slide here because it's such an example of how these explorers, travelers, looters, I'm just throwing out words that I have heard, um, how they would collect these objects and display them as a form of classification. Um, displaying art and classifying this to display humans' progression was actually quite, um, quite a practice that I think 
um, as we look back in terms of um, how anthropology made its imprint on exhibit, exhibition practices that we can see that very clearly in this slide here. I think that we ought to think of this collection and classification of our art as a theory in human evolution through art and science. This was, again, an exercise to construct whiteness and especially superiority, white male superiority. So what we're looking at here is a classification system of African masks up here. Um, and then these are just small in the middle, two and three, um, are just small sculptures. They look a lot uh, like maternity sculptures. And then in this fourth row, you see headrests. There's one right here, one right here, which were quite popular. Um, frankly, I see them at World Market all the time. They're still being replicated, right? <laughs> which is actually quite interesting. And then you have more fertility figures down here. I just find this, this image fascinating. And of course, you have spears on the side. Why would anyone want to take those and display them? What was this really about? Um, I just wanted you to think about that, right? The, for the most part, because I think I need to acknowledge that a lot of the um, African men especially traded these objects with travelers for, for other things, right? I'll give you this, you give me that. I'll give you this mask, you'll, you'll give me that. But for the most part, they were taken, right? As symbols of their travels. And so let's think about that. Let's hold that. Why and why in such vast amounts? This is nothing compared to the Pitt Rivers Museum. I mean, huge collections of African art. I went to one house here in San Francisco person who I will not name, um, she had objects in drawers, in her kitchen, in her bedroom that her husband had collected over the years. And it was absolutely stunning. And she said, you know, he would travel and bring things back home. And so I just want to acknowledge that, yes, some were acquired on a, on a fair basis, right, a barter basis. The vast majority, when you see African art in a museum that people get from either auctions and so forth, especially the old pieces, we ought to think about where they came from and, and under what circumstances. Okay, so this is the Smithsonian Institution. This is from their archives, this black and white photograph. Um, and then we want to get to the Natural History Museum. And there's not much I want to show about this except for a couple of things. Um, the African Voices exhibit, which I'm gonna talk about, talk about after, um, which is the exhibit that I did my work on, is housed in the Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian. Why do you think that is so? Why on earth would they want an exhibit, any cultural, museum, any cultural exhibit in a natural history museum? Let's just ask that question to ourselves hypothetically. What does a natural history museum invoke for you? 
So I want to just bring your attention to a little bit of language. This is the website. Um, for those of you on podcasts, it's just the website. Um, introduction to the Natural History, National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian. And so it says in the second paragraph, whether looking at the history cultures of Africa, describing our earliest mammalian ancestor or primate diversity around the world, examining ancient life forms, including the ever popular dinosaurs, or exploring the beauty of rare gemstones, such as the uniquely colored diamonds, the museum's temporary and permanent exhibits serve to educate, enlighten, and entertain millions of visitors a year. I then want to skip down to the third paragraph. At the center of the museum's exhibit is a research program. Um, and then a little further down, just to name a few of our museum holdings, the collections include 30 million insects, 4.5 million plants, 7 million fish, 2 million cultural artifacts, and on and on and on. And so I ask you, is the Natural History Museum an appropriate place for the African Voices exhibit? I often thought about that when I went to go visit African Voices. Um, how does it situate us as the audience member as we're roaming through the Natural History Museum when we come across this exhibit on African Voices? And so even before walking into the museum, what is invoked? Africa is old. Africa is static. It's not modern. Zora Neale Hurston, Fernando, shared an article with me when we were in graduate school together, used to call this museum, Natural History Museum, the Museum of Unnatural History. I like that. It works. The stereotypes that were exhibited in this museum were problematic, to say the least. And so I want to show you, first of all, let me fall back a little bit. When I was doing my research on African voices, it was really, really hard to get old brochures from the old Africa Hall. And so this is what happened. The Natural History Museum had what they called an Africa Hall that opened in 1922. Um, and it, in 1922, the exhibit stayed up until 1960, okay? So it was, you know, a reflection, I suppose, of the time. The brochure that was handed out at the Smithsonian up until 1960. This is some of the language from that brochure. And I just highlighted a little bit of language. This is rural Africa, traditional Africa, most of Africa here where the outside influence is only beginning to penetrate. That's a problem, 1960. What kind of image are they, are they trying to sell us as audience members about the continent of Africa? I think, here's another label. This is an actual display of this, the first Africa Hall, and this is the label that was beside it. Beside it, it reads, he does not hesitate to boldly attempt 
the fashioning of the human form in his fetches and his barbaric sculpture achieves what to him are satisfying works of art which convey their interest to civilized man. It's a little problematic. Here's another piece of an exhibit um, slide, excuse me, label, um, that went with this black and white photograph of the Bantu tribe. They are physically strong and energetic and not as dark as the true Negro. So, in 1967, the museum took this exhibit down and did a little bit of a refurbishing of it. So from 1967 to 1992, um, the majority of these labels stayed up. And I want to tell you that in 1992, there was a huge shift at the Smithsonian Institution. That's when things really got bad. And so long story short, what happened was that people started writing letters and complaining, complaining to the Washington Post, complaining to the secretary, putting things in writing. Um, so much so that there was a Senate hearing about it in 1992. And I want to share with you a little bit of what was said at that Senate hearing, very briefly. So after this huge letter campaign, um, the Senate hearing uh, was in 1992. And the Secretary of the Smithsonian was called to testify on the proposed National African American Museum. Not this museum, the African American Museum, the one that just opened a year or so ago. It was during his testimony, the Secretary of the Smithsonian, that Representative Gus Savage, head of the Congressional Black Caucus, asked the Secretary of the Smithsonian to comment on the following label panel um, called Control of the Supernatural. And this was the panel. This was the label. Secret society, and remember this is in 1992. Secret societies of prophets, diviners, medicine men, and others are politically powerful in Zaire. Members sometime in costume assemble in clubhouses where they chant, dance, and participate in secret rites, secret rites and such orgies, cannibalism, and the eating of exhumed corpse, corpses, all to acquire supernatural powers. So the secretary of the Smithsonian, his response to the panel must not have sufficed because they closed the Africa exhibit three months later. And so that was the end of the Africa exhibit. And so the question was, what do you put up there in its, in its place? And that's when the new African Voices comes to fruition. And so as you can see, there is a linear kind of political progression that happened that opened up the space for the new African Voices exhibit to open. So this is African Voices. I'm just showing a, you a photograph from the website. Um, 
the exhibit opened in 1997. One of the groups that was really instrumental in closing the old Africa Hall, its name is Tuwa Moja. In Swahili, it means we are one. Um, it's interesting in looking back in my notes, when I asked the curators about Tuwa Moja, there was still a lot of resentment towards them. It was almost like, how dare they come to us and tell us that we need to take this old exhibit down? Um, they were very still a lot, quite salty about it. Um, even in 2000, early 2000, when I visited the museum and did my research. Um, the community gave the curators advice on this new African Voices exhibit, but ultimately the museum and the curators decided content. And what I want to kind of leave you with is that this exhibit and other cultural exhibits, what I like to say is, and Stuart Hall says it as well, the things don't mean, we assign the meaning through our own lens. And I think what the African Voices tries to do is give us a more expansive look into the continent of Africa. And so it has themes like wealth in Africa, market crossroads, working in Africa, global Africa, Congo crossroads. It's organized by theme. And I, don't, I still don't think it works. And I want to offer this to you. I actually don't think it is a worthy exercise to try and present the African continent in a museum exhibit. I just don't think it's a good idea to do. Um, and you can, frankly, this is an example where you can open it up, frankly, to any culture. I think the better exercise is to organize exhibits by theme, by idea. Um, I think it's arrogant to think that you can represent the African continent that's 12 million miles in an art exhibit, in a museum. But yet we do it over and over and over again, especially in our um, American museums. I think in the 90s when this was unveiled, I was always struck by Lynn Cheney, who is Dick Cheney's wife, um, who was at the time the National Endowment for the Humanities um, chairwoman. And she signaled that the museum was now in the business of debunking greatness in Western values. That was her position. I found that fascinating, that she thought that the museum was now in the business of debunking greatness in Western values. Um, and I think that there is still a struggle with the African subject. We have the President of the United States refer to Africa as having shithole countries. That's our president. There's just, there is just this still very stuck nature of the continent as a whole that I think is very problematic. And I think um, lots of African Americans romanticize the continent as well. And I think we need to give a wink and a nod to that. One of the things that I'm excited about are artists like Fred Wilson, who take the art and tell a story and problematize it for us. He is not known for including labels. Uh, what he will do is he will go into a museum and use their own collection to tell a story. 
um, and will uh, position us as audience members to think beyond the self in terms of what the object is telling us. So what we're looking at now is a, is a Dan mask from an exhibit, Mining the Museum, it was a great exhibit, there's lots of write-up about it, with a British flag over the eyes. Amazing piece. Equally as amazing is this piece here. Lots of has, have been written about it. What we're looking at is a color photograph from Mining the Museum um, using their own collection of a baby carriage, a KKK hood that was part of their collection, and if you see in the corner here is a cell phone. Lots of narratives going on here. The fact that um, racism is learned from an early age. The cell phone brings it into contemporary times. I mean, this is the kind of work that Fred Wilson does that really positions us to read the art exhibit like a book and to challenge it and its scholarly work. And it, it, challenge what we're seeing. And I like his work in particular. I wanted to bring into the room the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and I realized that it, it is not an art museum. But as some of you may know, this is the um, memorial that opened in Alabama in just a couple of months ago. To, and it's actually the nation's first memorial dedicated to the legacy of enslaved black people people terrorized by lynching, African-Americans humili humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow, and people of color burdened with contemporary presumptions of guilt and police violence. And so what they have done, there are 800 of these still monuments hanging from the ceiling, one from each county where lynching took place, um, and their names, the names of the men and women who were lynched are actually engraved on the steel monuments. But why, why I bring this in, because they're doing something that, that I think really, really works. They're asking the counties to claim their monument and to reinstall them in their home county and to have a conversation with members in their community about lynching. Um, they've gotten some pushback and I've read a lot of it, right, some women are, or some people are saying that um, we should leave the past alone, that this museum or memorial should not have been open. And so it calls, in, calls into question, you know, our responsibility in terms of uh, visiting the history in our past. And finally, I want to give, um, I want to acknowledge the Black Panther exhibit that happened at the Oakland Museum. They did a great job. It was last year, 2016-17. Um, so there are museums that are doing really, really, really good cultural work. Um, it was engaging, very few labels. Um, the audience was, was asked to um, think about history in terms of themselves and in terms of the community. So I just wanted to offer those two examples as examples of work that's being done around the world and certainly in our own backyard, that um, I believe has shifted um, how we think of museums. And so I want to end with a quote by Shirley Chisholm. She says, you don't make progress by standing on the sidelines, whimpering and complaining. 
You make progress by implementing ideas. And finally, Carl Phillips in his great book, Atlantic Sound says, Africa cannot cure. Africa cannot make anybody feel whole. Africa is not a psychiatrist. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.